gospel, its self-expressed purpose, the purpose that John tells us in, in no uncertain words, is that we might know who Jesus is. That's why he's writing. He expresses it very clearly toward the end in the 20th chapter. He says, I'm writing all these things. I've picked all these things out that I'm including. I'm writing them that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and in believing that you might have life in his name. So here we are at the end of the prologue where John has been describing the Word. And now he's at long last going to finally connect the dots for us and tell us explicitly what we've already assumed, what we've already known, that the Word is Jesus. And I find this morning that I want to focus on a single verse out of these final five. We're going to read them all for context And I will cover the remainder of them next week, but I want to focus on one specific verse, verse 14. It is the most important verse in the prologue, and in many ways it is a single verse synopsis of the entire gospel. So I want to ask you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, these are the very words of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. May God bless the preaching of His inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative Word. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you lend your help? We need it. Our understanding was bent and broken in the fall. Our wills were also bent and broken. Our hearts became like stone. Holy Spirit, would you come in power this morning? Would you take this, your word? Would you shine your light on it? Would you take our understanding and would you fix it where it's broken? Would you uncover our blind eyes? Would you unstop our deaf ears that we might see the glory of the Word who is Christ, who is the very image of God. Would we see that glory? Would we be changed by seeing that glory this morning? We pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Please be seated. So as we dig in primarily just to this single verse, verse 14 this morning, four hugely important things that you see about the Word. We need to look at, number one, His becoming flesh. Number two, His dwelling with us. Number three, His showing or His exhibiting of glory. And fourth, His being full of grace and truth. There's an outline in your worship folder if that helps you follow along. And with each of these four, I've got something specifically that I want you to focus on that I want your minds to linger on, 
to meditate upon about each of these four things. So for the first one, we need to look at His becoming flesh, and I want you to focus on Jesus condescending. In His becoming flesh, Jesus is condescending to us. When you read those words, the Word became flesh, that should be shocking to you, but I'm afraid it's not. Back in verse 9 of of this chapter, John was preparing us. He was preparing us for the fact that the Word was coming into the world. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. But that He would come like this? See, if we weren't so used to this already, we'd be shocked. But it's too familiar, and we just read right over it as if it's no big deal. It definitely would have been shocking to the first century hearers and readers if they had any kind of Greco-Roman worldview about them because they were predominantly dualists, right? They viewed and understood the world as having two distinct forms, spirit and matter. And the two didn't mix. The two didn't mingle because matter was primarily evil. And if anything was going to be good, it would be spirit. And so for God, who is a spirit, who can't be seen, for Him to take on flesh is crazy talk. What do you mean He became flesh? And even if you weren't from that worldview or that background or that understanding, even if you had just been reading along with John thus far, what He'd been saying about the Word, you'd still be shocked. That he said the word was in the beginning. He's existed for eternity. He was not created. In fact, not only was he not created, he created everything that was made. He did it. Not only was he with God in the beginning, the word also was God. So you mean to tell me this eternal, divine, creator of all the creatures was becoming flesh? Becoming like one of the creatures? And note, that's exactly how John describes it. He says, became flesh. He could have said a lot of different things. He could have said, became a man. Became human. But instead, he chooses to say the Word became flesh. That Word is lowly. That Word is loaded with meaning. And it's not very flattering meaning. It's rather crude. It speaks of being frail, vulnerable, subject and susceptible to all types of misery and pain. Prophet Isaiah, in making a point about the Word of God, tells us something about flesh. In Isaiah chapter 40, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? Cry this, God says to him, all flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. 
The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. And the Word became a people. The Word became like grass. Grass that can wither when the breath of the Lord, in fact, did blow. Do you see the great condescension of our Savior? He was with God and He left. He was God and He became flesh. He he humbled Himself. Our, our women's Bible study that meets on Monday nights is studying Paul's letter to the Philippians. And they just recently covered these amazing verses in chapter 2 of Philippians. When Paul, speaking of Jesus, has this to say, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to. But instead, he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form. Being found in flesh. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. He didn't have to. He could have held on. He could have grasped to his rightful place at the Father's side and not come down, not become weak and frail and vulnerable, not become flesh. Instead, he humbled himself. He condescended. And in doing so, the Word, Jesus, is one person with two distinct natures in the one person he is truly God and truly man one person two natures if you have studied or read any church history I'm not sure of anything that has led to more heresies than this. All kinds of error and failure to understand Jesus being God and man at the same time. All right? And, and so everybody does a, a, a wide variety of things. They're, they say things like, oh, well, it's really two different people. There's, there's the divine Jesus and there's the human Jesus, and they're, they're two different. They just have to be two different people. That's the only way it makes sense. Or they say, all right, somehow Jesus' divinity and his humanity, they got thrown into a blender, if you will, and they're mixed. So he's, he's kind of divine and he's, and he's kind of human, but he's not fully either of those things. He's something different. Some say, well, he only appeared as a human. Uh, uh, he had the appearance, not the physical reality. They, they looked and thought they were looking at a real human, and on and on and on. 
And the reason there are so many heresies surrounding this, the reason there's so much error, is that it is hard to grasp. It is hard to wrap our pea-sized brains around Jesus being 100% God and Jesus being 100% man at the same time because we want the math to add up in our minds and it doesn't. We, we think this has got to make sense to us and we lack the humility there to fully understand his humility in becoming flesh. If you think maybe this is just theology and this doesn't impact our daily living, I want you to go back and read Philippians 2 for yourself. Read the verses that come before these verses that so beautifully explain Christ setting aside his rightful place and humbling himself. Plug that back in and see how that's supposed to affect your relationships with those around you. It's essential that we get this. It affects how we live with one another. Go back and read that on your own. Second thing we've got to see about the Word is His dwelling with us. And I want you to focus on God's presence. The presence of God. It's something, friends, that we were made for. It's something that Adam and Eve experienced beautifully. God's presence in the garden. Him walking among them. In the cool of the day. That's just beautiful. But it didn't last. It all fell apart. The rebellion came. The doubting of God's goodness came. And they were exiled from the garden and from God's presence. And the whole rest of the Old Testament is about restoring, about getting back to experiencing the presence of God. And the Lord is oh so gracious in making a way to do that in making a way for his people to experience his presence again. And there are many examples of that and instances of that, but one of the big ways, one of the big means of his grace, of helping his people experience his presence again, is the tabernacle. In the Old Testament, this, this tent, this makeshift sanctuary, he says in Exodus 25, it's one of the earlier places where he is uh, talking about it, he says, let them make me a sanctuary that, purpose word, I may dwell in their midst, that I may be present with them again. And so you read intricate detail after hard to read intricate detail of how the tabernacle is supposed to be constructed and then eventually it's erected so that God can dwell. And later the tabernacle would be replaced by the somewhat more permanent structure of a temple and God's presence in the tabernacle, God's presence in the temple was surely impressive. But it was limited. Certain times. That specific geographic location. It was better than nothing at all, but it still wasn't what God intended. And now here we are in John's Gospel. And he's talking about the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Something that the prophets had long been prophesying and promising. I will dwell in your midst. I will come and I will live with you. And then silence. Then for 400 years, no more 
words from the Lord, no real presence to speak of. And then John comes and tells us, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And many of you already know this. You've heard teaching on this. This, this verb, dwell, you know what it literally means? It means he pitched his tent. The Word tabernacled with us. The Word wouldn't just be a new location, a new house for the presence of God. The Word would be Himself, God, among us, God with us. And so when the prophet Isaiah prophesied Messiah's birth, he also prophesied his naming and said, you're going to call this baby Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Word became flesh. He condescended. The Word pitched His tent among us that we might experience God's presence And in doing both of those things, he showed us his glory. So point number three, the word showing or exhibiting glory. And here's what you need to focus on. This is what the enemy desperately wants you to not see. Is the glory of the word. This verse says, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. Now, I mentioned the tabernacle to you. God's presence among his people. And when it comes to seeing the glory of the Word and understanding the power there and the impact there, we probably ought to just go ahead and take a look more closely at the tabernacle and at God's glory in the Old Testament. So if you've got your Bibles, flip over to Exodus 33. Because I want to give you a little background here to help us understand both God's presence with His people and also His revealing His glory to His people. And you really would do well, maybe this afternoon, to read all of chapter 33 and all of chapter 34. I'm just going to give you a few highlights this morning. And I'll start in Exodus 33 with verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And so likely this is a a, a premature form of the tabernacle, right? Probably just a little tent while the big tabernacle is being constructed before it gets pitched uh, and erected later on in, in Exodus, right? He would set it up. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent... All the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. As a man speaks to his friend, when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. All right, so now after this, after these verses, Moses is going to be requesting, even pleading with the Lord for his presence in the days ahead, for for leading his people. And then he gets even more specific in his pleas and in his request. 
And I want you to note in these next verses what Moses knows that they desperately, desperately need, what they have to have, what they have to see. Exodus 33, beginning in verse 18, Moses said, Please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. My face shall not be seen. And then in the next verses after this, recounts of Moses taking two new stone tablets because the first two he got angry with the people and he broke them in his fury. And so the Lord's graciously giving him two new tablets and he takes them up on the mountain. And God's word, his law, his revelation, his speaking to his people is inscribed upon these new tablets. And now here we are in John's gospel with his ultimate final word, his ultimate speaking to the people through his son. And here's a little bit more of what transpired on the mountain in Exodus 34, beginning of verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will know by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Now, what happens after that? What happens when Moses comes down off the mountain? Right? Verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. So they made Moses wear a veil. They said, cover that up. You're scaring us to death. And so when he went to meet with God, he'd take the veil off. When he came back out to the people, he put the veil on. That was the effect. That was the impact of seeing, of beholding the glory of God. It was overwhelming. It was fear-inducing, even secondhand. So when John says the Word became When he says, we have seen his glory. Glory that could only be that of the Son of God. It's a special kind of glory. You've you've seen the word? You've seen him now that he's become flesh? Well, guess what? You have seen the glory of God. Now, 
There's an important question here. Who is this we that John is talking about? John says, we have seen his glory. And as this gospel unfolds, as we get out of the introduction and into the gospel proper, you'll see that that we isn't the majority of folks. It's certainly not everybody. It's not even the majority. It's only those who we saw last week who have received Jesus, who have been born not of blood or of flesh or the will of man, but born of God. It it can only be those because everyone else has been blinded to that glory. The enemy has blinded folks to the glory of the Word. So if you're not seeing the glory, it's because you've been blinded, 2 Corinthians 4.4, right? Those who don't see the glory, well, in their case, the God of this world, our enemy, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The enemy can't stand for us to see the glory of the Word. Because he knows that once we see that glory, it's all over with. Once we behold his glory, we'll know that what verse 4 said is true, that in him is life. Once we see his glory, what we talked about last week, we will fall in love with him. We can't not. We'll we'll cast ourselves on him. We'll fling ourselves at his feet. We'll cling to him because when we see the glory of the word, we also see our fourth point here. We also see that the word is full of grace and truth. And what I want you to focus on here is that this is a necessary, this is an essential combination, grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, why these two? Why grace and truth? He could have said lots of things here, could have picked any pair of things, love, mercy, righteousness, but he says, no, it's full of grace and truth. Grace, we know, is unmerited favor. It is goodness and kindness that we do not deserve. And the Word is full of that. But He's also full of truth. Now, He's not full of some external truth. there's, There's this truth out here. There's this philosophy or ideology, and the Word is full of that. No, it's it's not truth that's external to him. He'll go on in chapter 14. You know the verse. It's famous, right? I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I am truth, the Word says. He's full of truth, the truth that he had to come. He had to leave. He had to become flesh because we were dead. In our our trespasses and sins, in our rebellion, we had a 
death sentence stamped upon us because of violating and offending the holiness and righteousness of God. Now, don't forget to make this connection that we've already made. Think about this. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So it's the Word's holiness and righteousness that have been offended by our rebellion. And so if the Word was only true, we would be crushed, rightfully crushed in our rebellion, having offended the Word's holiness and righteousness. But the Word is full of truth and grace. And so the Word did come, and the Word did become flesh, that His flesh might be whipped and scourged and pierced and crushed for our transgressions. And it's that combo of grace and truth that is essential. If it were one or the other, it wouldn't work. If it were just truth, we'd be crushed. If it were just grace and just wanting God to just wink at our sin and say, oh, let's pretend like that never happened. Let's just sweep that under the rug. We're not going to deal with that. We'll pretend it and wish it away. Then he'd be a hypocrite. We've already seen from the passage in Exodus that we read. Right? It can't be. He will by no means clear the guilty. He'll forgive what has been paid for, but he'll by no means clear it and weak it away. That's not an option. Then his righteousness and his holiness would be out the window. But part of the glory of the word is that he's full of both grace and truth. Perfectly embodied in the one person with the two natures. And we're going to be reminded of that beautiful combo when we come to the table in just a few moments. Grace and truth. We're slapped in the face with the truth of what had to happen. Body broken, bloodshed. But we also encounter by faith the transforming power of grace that is available to us. All because our word did become flesh, did dwell among us, did show us his glory, glory that is full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you and praise you for the word. Thank you that he set aside his rights, that he humbled himself, and that he left your side. He left the splendor, the magnificence, the comfort of your side and your fatherly care for him. He left it to come and pitch his tent with us and to show us glory glory even even as he would submit to being hung on a cross in our place. Father, would you take your truth 
and your grace and would you press them deeply on our hearts this morning that we might clearly understand both our need and your gracious, gracious provision for that need. Prepare us to come to the table. Make us hungry, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and let's sing in preparation for coming to the table. find at the table both truth